I'm glad you're here. I was, uh, I was out last week. Um, whatever blooms in Oklahoma in October and November, um, it's sure blooming because it got me. And uh, I didn't feel too horrible a week ago, but I, I didn't have a voice to preach, and that's kind of an occupational thing for me. Uh, but if you, honestly, if you wouldn't mind, um, I really appreciate if you just sort of breathe a prayer from my throat and my voice right now so that I can get through the rest of the morning. Should have come to the nine o'clock service. I was stronger then, but I'd appreciate that. I want to talk to you real quickly about this 72 hours of reading the Bible. I was going to introduce it last week and, and I was out and you've heard about it, but I want to give you a fuller explanation of, of what we do. <clears throat> the first Sunday of December is our 24th anniversary as a church. And the, the way that we're going to sort of honor what God has done over these last 24 years is um, on that day, we're going to begin reading the Bible out loud. It takes about 72 hours, a little bit longer than 72 hours to do that. Um, the Ezra series that I've been teaching will finish that day on our anniversary day. And it finishes actually with a chapter from the book of Nehemiah that talks about the day that Ezra stood up and read the word of God and the people stood for a whole day to just hear the word of God. There's something incredibly powerful, in fact, almost eerie about, about what happens when the word of God is spoken out loud. And what we're going to do is on that anniversary Sunday, uh, we'll, when we finish our Sunday morning worship, we're going to start at 1230 that day, and this will run about 72 hours or until we finish. And um, we've divided those, that time into 30-minute segments. What I want to invite you to do, this is how it works. You sign up for a 30-minute segment, and you come, and for your time, you'll come up here, and on this pulpit, there will be a large print, wide-margin Bible. And you'll begin reading from wherever the last person stopped, and you'll just read for 30 minutes or until the, the next person arrives. And when you're finished, you'll just sign your name in the margin uh, at, at that ending place. And at the end of that time, we have a record of, you know, 145 people who have, who have registered as they read the Word of God. Now, this is around the clock, so when you sign up, be sure you know if you're signing up for a.m. or p.m. Um, but, but listen, if you're here in the middle of the night, um, we have security around uh, that, that will be here all night long. They'll, they'll meet you at your car and escort you in. They'll walk you to your car if you want to do that. A lot of times a husband and wife will sign up for an hour together and they'll each read for 30 minutes. Here's what I want to tell you. you. You might think, well, that's kind of a cheesy thing. Let me tell you something. Take it from somebody who preached to an empty room for 11 Sundays during the pandemic. There is something... Eerie is not the right word, but there is something supernatural that happens when the Word of God is spoken out loud. There may be people here during your time slot. People will be in and out during those 72 hours. They come and they sit. They just listen to the Word of God being, uh, being read. 
But you may be here in a time slot when there's nobody here. But I tell you, when you read the Word of God out loud, you become aware that there are there, there is an invisible audience. The universe pauses when the Word of God is spoken. I want to invite you to find a time. You can sign up for uh, an email reminder when your time is coming up. I can't promise you when you're, when, what your reading will be. You know, it seems like Song of Solomon always lands in the middle of the night somewhere. Um, you know, you may get a genealogy full of a lot of names, but if there's nobody in the room, you just butcher that however you need to. <laughs> All right? Um, I will tell you this. People that have done this will say, I stood up and I saw the section that I was going to have to read and I was disappointed until I read it. And God was just there. The other thing you need to know is that for the first time that we've ever done this, we have the capabilities. We're going to live stream the full 72 hours. So wherever you are, if you want to turn this on and just have that going in the background, creating an atmosphere of the Word of God, wherever you happen to be, um, you, you'll be able to do that. We're going to live stream the whole 72 hours. In a church our size, there's only 144 or 146 slots. I can't remember exactly how many we have, but um, those are going to fill up. And so if you want to do this, let me encourage you to, to sign up sooner rather than later. Uh, it'll be the first Sunday of December. I'll preach from Nehemiah that day, and then we'll start to read, and we'll go around the clock for 72 hours. I think it's a great way for us to honor what God has done here over these last 24 years because for us, from the time we started to today, the Word of God has been foundational to everything that we do. It's not just in the pulpit on Sunday mornings. It's in it's at every age group, group. It's in every place that we do. Uh, we've tried to be explicitly biblical. I mean, this is what is missing in most churches. And we want to just acknowledge God. And, and, and I want to invite you. You don't have to even be reading. If you, just, if you just have some time, it is a cool thing to just come and sit and listen to the Word of God read out loud. Let me invite you to just come at any point in, in that 72 hours and just put yourself in, in this atmosphere. It's going to be a terrific thing. So, so you might have heard that and thought, well, that's a weird thing. I don't know what I, what I think about that. I wanted to give you a fuller explanation because it is really a great experience. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. Open your Bibles to the eighth chapter of Ezra. <coughs> the lesson I was going to teach last Sunday has been postponed till today. So obviously... Uh, whoever needed to hear it is here today, and, uh, and God worked that out. I, uh, I have a number of books that have been um, pretty encouraging and inspiring to me. About, I like to read books about the conception of God that people have out of their own um, experiences. And, and one writer that, that I have enjoyed over the years, she's a little bit eccentric, uh, her name is Annie Dillard, and she has written a book entitled Teaching a Stone to Talk. But I really like the way she writes because she talks about God in ways that, that sort of broaden my thinking. Uh, I get in a rut sometimes, and as, as a pastor, because I handle the sacred scriptures so much, 
it's easy for me to slip into a mechanical approach and, and God just becomes a character that, that's a part of this story. And Annie Dillard is one of those writers that, that continually draws me out of my routine and reminds me uh, of really who this is that, that we speak of. In Teaching a Stone to Talk, there is this excerpt. She said, the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Another book was written by Donald McCullough. It's called The Trivialization of God. And he has this to say. He says, the modern church has created a tame, manageable deity that much more resembles us than the wild, unpredictable, transcendent God of the scriptures. Why, he asked, would we be drawn to a safer deity? Well, he gives several possible explanations. First, it's because modern Christians have been tempted by the reductionist tendencies of the natural sciences. In other words, science has lost its awe of the universe because we have figured out how to reduce things down to, to comprehensible parts so that we can manage it. And the temptation has been to do the same thing in our theology as we consider God, to, to reduce him down to explanatory segments so that we can, as a result, manage him. He says, our view of God, it's tempting for us to choose for ourselves a controllable God, a God who will not threaten our growing sense of mastery over the world. Secondly, he says, Modern Christians struggle with the silence of God, especially in a world experiencing a knowledge explosion on an unprecedented scale. In a world that has holocausts and genocides and even the personal trauma of the death of a child, the question is, where is God when we're in such desperate need? And what we've done is we've created a safe, tame idol of a God who's always present because we're disturbed by the dangerous God who so often feels distant. But then he says, then this is really where I, where I fall. He says, third, the rampant individualism of modern Western culture has encouraged a cafeteria-style spirituality where individuals select dishes from an ecclesiastical smorgasbord to meet their own inclinations and wishes. We've made God into an image that we're comfortable with. This is the whole what would Jesus do mindset. Because it's funny when people say, well, what would Jesus do? It's funny to me that Jesus would always do pretty much what that person thinks should happen. Don, uh, uh, there is a book from 1967 by J.B. Phillips, a little book that's a classic. I don't agree with everything that he wrote, but it's an interesting little book called Your God is Too Small. And the table of contents communicates some of the images of God that are prevalent in modern culture that he, that he speaks to. And just a survey of some of the chapter titles, God as resident policeman. In other words, a God that's not really about personal relationship, but a God who's just charged with sort of uh, keeping peace and, and order in, in the universe. The grand old man, 
a bearded grandfather rocking on the porch in a rocking chair, not a threat to anybody, just a, a gentle old soul that we turn to when we need a little bit of a pat on the back. The God of the heavenly bosom, a place where we just rest when we need a little peace and quiet. The managing director, the God who just oils the machinery and keeps the creation, the created order running smoothly. Then there's the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the pale Galilean who is not so much a, a God that we worship, but sort of a buddy to sort of get us over the next little speed bump in our life. All of these writers have one thing in common, and that is they remind me that this God that we speak about so casually on Sunday mornings is not a God who is our buddy, who is our, the subject of our, our own uh, contemplation. He is not like us in some fundamental ways. It reminds me of that scene in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy, the youngest of the, uh, of the children in those C.S. Lewis stories, is confronted with the reality of Aslan, the, the lion who represents Jesus Christ. And, and she asked with fear in her voice, she said, oh no, a lion, is he safe? To which the answer is, of course he's not safe, but he is good. We need to abandon our grasp of a safe God and embrace the danger and the power and the might of the real God with this assurance that underneath all of it, he is good. In the eighth chapter of Ezra, where we find ourselves today, Ezra is now beginning the process of bringing a second wave of returnees out of Persia and back to Judah. The first six chapters of this book where we saw the first wave of returnees under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. They left from Babylon. They made their way to, to Judah where they uh, faced many challenges but eventually uh, built an altar and then completed the temple. About 60 years have passed, and now God is raising up a new leader. His name is Ezra. We met him in chapter 7, and the king of Persia has given him the same permission that Zerubbabel had uh, in, in, in the first chapter, permission to have the resources, the wealth that the king would offer so that he could lead uh, returnees back to their homeland and strengthen the population. The existence of Judah was very precarious. They had rebuilt the temple, but there were no defensive walls around the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were close to being overwhelmed by enemies that didn't want them resettling the land. And so Ezra is a kind of a bookish fellow. He's a scribe. He loves to study the Word of God. In my imagination, he was probably much more comfortable in his study, in his cubicle, with his scrolls. And yet God raised him up and said, you're a man that will lead. And this is the challenge. You will take thousands of people, and you will travel 900 miles over about 15 weeks, and you will go to Judah, and you will strengthen the population by teaching them the Word of God. Now, I'm going I'm to introduce you to Ezra more this week than I did in, in chapter 7 when we met him. 
Ezra is a fairly obscure character in the Old Testament, but I got to tell you, he's in my he's on my top five list of people that from the Bible that I want to meet when I get to heaven. And I'm going to show you why, because the main verse that draws me to Ezra is in this chapter, and we're going to look at it this morning. And I want you to see why I identify with Ezra so so deeply. But he, here's Ezra, and, and he's going to tell us a story. He's gotten all the permission for the trip, but now the trip is going to unfold. So Ezra chapter 8, beginning in verse 15, we're going to see that he started by assembling the saints. Ezra eight fifteen. He says, Now I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava, where we camped for three days, And when I paid close attention to the people and the priests, I did not find any Levites there. So I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, teachers. And I sent them to Edo, the leading man, at the place called Casaphia, and I told them what to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants at the place Casaphia, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. And as the good hand of our God was upon us, they brought us a man of insight from the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah and Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his brothers and their sons, 20 men, and 220 of the temple servants whom David and the officials had provided for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. Now, it's easy to get lost in that, in that section because of all the names, but here's what's happening. Ezra is faced with a challenge to transport this group of returnees all the way to Judah to successfully get them there, and then once arriving in Judah, to strengthen the population that was there so that, the, uh, so that what God was doing in the promised land with his chosen people could not just be strengthened, but could really survive. Understand that this was not just a historical moment where a random people group is relocating to their arbitrary homeland. This is a critical piece of the story that God is unfolding that will eventually lead to a Messiah who brings redemption for the whole world. Okay? First of all, we never know how truly significant the events of our lives are because we don't always see how God weaves us into the part of the story that is going to lead to the conclusion that he has for human history. Don't ever tell yourself, well, I'm just a nobody. I really don't make any difference. It doesn't matter what my life does. Listen, if, if, if your life didn't matter to God, if he didn't have a purpose and a use for you, he would just have swept you out of the way. Okay, if you're here and you're breathing air, there's a reason that God needs you. He wants you to be involved in something. Ezra understood that, and so he calls the people together. He assembles the saints. Anytime we we have to face the challenges of a generation, it's important for us to be in the habit of the saints assembling. I've talked to two pastors in in recent months, and I just finished reading a book from a a third pastor, uh, and these two pastors have told me in different ways, they they said, "We, we do more and more stuff online now because we've discovered that there's not anything that we do as a church that we can't do just as well online. I said, well, dude, you're doing church way different from I'm doing church because I can't say that. 
I mean, I just finished a book by a fairly well-known pastor, and he argues for the need for all of us as pastors to move our churches toward what he calls virtual campuses. These are, these are churches where they use avatars to literally have virtual Lord's Supper and virtual baptism, and they, have, they create virtual community. Now, I don't have to, I don't have to break that down for you too much, but, but just think about it this way. If you have a thousand Facebook friends, if you have a thousand followers on Instagram, how many of those people are actually community that you could live and die with in the crisis moments of your life? Why would we do church like that? Now, I'm grateful for social media, the ability for us to connect. I'm grateful for the technology. I mean, I was sick last week and I was home. I watched what, what happened in this room. I watched that on live stream and I'm grateful that that was an opportunity. And we want to make that continually available because there are people who are hindered in some way, physically or, or circumstantially, they can't be here. But I don't want us to ever fall into the trap that says that's the same because it's not. We assemble here because this is where we assess who we are and what God is doing among us. You see, Ezra brought the people together and he said, we've got this challenge. We're going to make this trip. And he brought the people together and he, and, he, and he examined them. And he discovered that they were missing some pieces that they needed to be successful. He said, we don't have any Levites. We're, we're shorthanded in the worship department. We need, to, we need to get some leadership. We need to find it. We need to shore up or we can't do the things that God has called us to do. One of the things about Evergreen that, that I love is, is I tell people all the time that when we, when we expand our ministry team, we fish our own pond first. Um, I, I don't know how many, how many people we have on our team now, um, 30 or 31 or 32, something like that. I don't know. But about 75% of the leadership in this church has come out of this congregation. Because God often provides us with leaders before we even know the area that we need them to lead in. But having said that, while that's a great thing, when we have, uh, when God says, this is something that I want you to do, I want you to cover this gap, I want you to, to have this skill set on the team, and we look and we survey, we fish our own pond, and we find out that that person's not here, guess what? We do what Ezra did, and we go out and we find that person and bring them in. You can't do that kind of process if you don't know, if you don't share life and know who people are, how God's working in the lives of people, what he's doing to develop people. As we see you being discipled, as we see you uh, giving your life to, to following Jesus, it, we, have to, we have to have a hands-on understanding of what God is up to in your life. It's the only way we can, we can adequately lead this church. We can't do that if you just check in online. The first thing they had to do when they faced the challenge of their generation was they assembled the saints. We're going to always be committed to assembling the saints and finding out who we are so that we can be sure that we're ready to accomplish what God's called us to. But secondly, it says that he offered consecration. Now, after this section where he talks about the, the leadership that he has to find, in verse 21, he does something interesting. 
He says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava to humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. Now, it's interesting because Ezra is going to challenge us because as a leader, he was a remarkable example of a man committed to both humility and to worship. There was no project for God that Ezra was willing to undertake without first seeking God's guidance. We're too often guilty of coming up with great plans and strategies and then moving forward and then asking God to bless the agenda that we've put forth. Ezra says, we're going to do what God's called us to do, but we're not only going to do what he called us to do, we're going to do it the way he called us to do. And so it was a prerequisite for them to come together and Ezra called a fast. Now, let me talk to you about fasting. Fasting is not a typical discipline too much in our generation. But in the Bible, a fast is often a symbol of submission to God. It was often used to highlight uh, a season of repentance for sin. Uh, but it was also about declaring your spirit of dependence on God. Now, now here's the thing. Um, it, a fast is supposed to sort of intensify your fervor. It's a religious, I mean, a, it's a spiritual discipline. Now, here's, here's the problem with fasting for us. That is, for us today, um, by and large, when we miss a meal, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, there's lots of days when I get home and Diane says, what'd you eat for lunch? I go, oh, I was real busy. I didn't eat lunch today. And guess what? I didn't even notice. Why? Because I was busy, plus I got plenty to burn. <laughs> okay? Ezra was living in a day and time where you had enough food to survive the day and you needed the food tomorrow to survive tomorrow. So when he called a fast, there was actual hunger involved. My experience is that, that when I fast, and I don't fast a, a great deal of time, but I do fast occasionally, but, but I usually, I, I have to fast for like 48 hours because really it's into the second day before I can say I'm genuinely hungry. And I think that's an important element of the fast because it's that hunger for something that consciously pushes you to remember that I'm setting aside the basics necessary for life because I'm going to focus on something else. Jesus said in the New Testament that man does not live by bread alone. We forget that. Not only do we forget that man doesn't live by bread alone, we often think man lives by bread only. And fasting is where we develop a discipline that says, I'm going to set this aside and, and eventually I'm going to need it. I mean, my body is going to tell me that I need it and I'm going to, I'm going to suppress that because I'm going to do this. Let me tell you about how to, how to fast. It's very simple. When you, when you fast and you take a day and you say, I'm going to fast today, it, it doesn't mean you simply go a day without eating. It means that in those time slots that you would normally dedicate your schedule to food, there's a little, a little brief breakfast time, there's, there's a lunch break, there's, there's dinner, uh, maybe there's a snack before you go to bed. In those times that you would normally turn your attention to food, 
on a fast day, you turn your attention to the word of God. You spend time in the presence of God. You read the Bible. You pray during those times so that literally on a fast day, the Bible is what you consume. Ezra said, we called a fast because we needed to acknowledge right up front that we were not adequate for the task in front of us. And a fast is a way of saying that more than I need the very food that keeps me alive, I need the God who has use for my life. He calls them to a fast, and they fast for those, these three days. And this is not appeasing God. They're not choosing to voluntarily suffer because God somehow honors that. This is, this is not the kind of petty suffering that is, is often offered to a pagan God. They're not trying to assuage God. They're trying to get themselves to a place where they understand that there is nothing in their life more important than, than what they're needing from God right now. That's what a fast is. It's setting aside the most basic requirements of my day so that I can declare by an act of my will that something else is more important. Well, look at what they prayed for during their fast. It says in verse 21, we, we, we humbled ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. That phrase, safe journey, is simply a Hebrew word that means a straight or level way. They were taking thousands of people, families, including children, they had been given by the king incredible wealth. They had been handed this wealth to use as the resources not only for their trip, but to help sustain the work that they were going to do when they got to Judah. So they've got vulnerable families with little children. They've got incredible wealth. They've got no army. And they asked God, give us a direct and smooth trip to our destination. Frankly, given the situation of the world in which they lived, that prayer request was incredibly bold. They're asking God in a world filled with robbers and thieves and attackers to take a bunch of vulnerable people carrying children and gold and get them to their destination safely. Why were they fasting? Because they were aware that if God didn't show up, they're completely screwed. Is there anything in your life that requires faith to the point that if God doesn't show up, you're in real trouble? Let me show you why this is important. They assembled the saints. They offered consecration, but then they had to exercise faith. This is the verse that I was referring to. This is one of my favorite verses, certainly in the book of Ezra, but maybe in the whole Old Testament. And I, I so connect with this man. Verse 22, he says, they, they, he's talking about how they, they're praying for a safe journey. He says, for I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who abandon him. 
These people were making a momentous decision to leave the security of their relatively comfortable life, make a dangerous four-month trip, and then live in Judah, which still had a very precarious existence. It was significant because it was a part of God's ultimate plan for human redemption. But here's, here is Ezra, and this is why I connect with him. Ezra is admitting to us as the leader of this endeavor that he's scared to death. He said, we prayed, we pleaded with God because we knew we were so overwhelmed by the challenge that was in front of us. But here's the thing. See, he said, I'd already stepped out and I'd spoken my faith. And I told the king, our God is enough. He said, I can't go back now and say, hey, our God is enough, but we could really use some, some soldiers if you don't mind sending some with us. This is a critical verse for us to understand because I think in our generation, and I see this, I see this in myself, I see this in, in, in other pastors, in our generation, when we're faced with cultural issues and, 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 and controversial topics that we try and speak to biblically, and, and we're faced with the challenges of, uh, of growing churches and, and, and those kinds of things, we preach about a God who's powerful, who's mighty, who's all-sufficient, who's omnipotent. And then we come over here and make sure we have a plan B just in case God doesn't, you know, live up to our words. And Ezra says, you know, I, 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 I've already testified about who God is. I've already laid it out there that this is the true God. This is not just a regional God. This is just not one of the gods of a whole spectrum of gods. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence. This is the God who chose a people to be his own. I can't come back now with an escape plan. He said, I, I, I've got to land on the beach and I've got to burn my ships. Folks, this is critical for us in our generation. Are we going to be casual attenders who just sort of do the church thing because we're used to it and it's a habit? Are we going to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ who are all in, come hell or high water, and if God doesn't show up to do the things in our lives that we've committed to, then we're sunk because we can't do them on our own. We don't have a plan B. Let me tell you about this church. I don't know if you've noticed the construction. We're building a 54,000 square foot building. It's costing $9 million. Why are we doing that? Because honestly, God woke me up in the middle of the night and he said, hey, build a building. Well, I don't have $9 million. I didn't ask you if you had $9 million. I told you to build a building. We stepped out to build a building. But let me tell you something. If God doesn't show up, we're sunk. But guess what? We don't have an escape plan. We don't have a plan B. 
And it's not just buildings. It's not just dollars. It's the way we live our lives. I mean, we live in a culture that will become increasingly hostile towards the faith. Are we good churchgoers as long as it doesn't cost us anything? Or have we settled the issue that we're all in no matter what happens because this is the road that we've been put on. God has us leaving from where we were and he's taking us to where we're going and we can't get there without him. But guess what? There's no place else to go. When, when Peter looked at Jesus and Jesus had looked at the disciples and, 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 and all the crowds had left, Jesus had laid out the requirements, the expectations for the level of, of commitment that he required. He looked to the disciples when the crowds left and he said, are you going to leave me too? And what did Peter say? Where are we going to go? Nobody has what you have. We've got to be those kind of people. We can't just be in the God thing when, when, it, when it, Jesus is not here to get us over the next little speed bump in our life. We, we've treated him like, like he's a, a self-help guru. He's just here to help us be better versions of ourselves. Let me tell you, the best version of yourself is still not enough to accomplish what God wants to do in you. So let's quit trying to get Jesus to sort of beef us up so we'll be better versions of ourselves so that we'll live our best life now. Let me tell you something. You don't need a preacher telling you how to live your best life. You need a pastor who calls you to follow in the steps of Jesus. And you got to be all in. You got to burn the ships. You got to sell out. There's no other pathway. There's no plan B. He says, I couldn't ask for pagan help because I had already said, God's enough. The pagans in our generation need to see a people who not only say God's enough, but we live the reality that we believe God's enough. Now, that doesn't mean we have super faith. It doesn't mean that we just rock along and we never have a care in the world. Ezra is telling us, I was scared to death. But even when I was scared, I couldn't go back. I only go forward. That has to be a people called Evergreen. There's no going back. We can't be less. We can't be easier. We can't be safer. A consistent faith is not a faith that makes us feel like superheroes. A consistent faith is a faith that allows scared people to give God a chance to put his power on display. Ezra's not bragging. He's not regretting. He's not embarrassed by God. He's embarrassed by his own personal shortcomings. He recognizes that he's not yet a great leader. But he says, I'm still going to do it. Because God's told me to do it, and I'm going to trust him. Let me tell you something. Man, this church started 24 years ago with 28 people. I didn't feel adequate to be the senior pastor of the church when there was 28 people. I don't feel adequate to be the, church, the pastor of a church that has 1,800 people. I'm sorry to, to, to burst your bubble. 
But I wake up every morning and go, God, what in the world are you thinking? I am not that guy. I don't have the skills. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the brains. I don't have the charisma. I mean, there's a lot of people here. There's a huge campus. There's, there's a lot going on. There's ministries in every direction, domestically and internationally. I'm not good enough to be that guy. And every, every, every morning, the answer from the Spirit is, you're not good enough to be that guy. You understand that? That's what makes you the guy. So I'm just trying to live by faith here, folks. I don't have a plan B. I don't have an escape route. I'm not jumping ship. I don't have other churches knocking down my doors trying to get me to come. I'm here for the duration. And we're going to keep moving forward because we don't know how to go back. He brought the saints together. They consecrated themselves. They exercised faith. And then God displayed his power. Verse 23, Ezra says, so we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter and he listened to our pleading. Listen, there's an economy of language in the Bible. Verse 23, there's lots of times in the Bible when, when they say in one sentence what we'd love to have a whole explanation of. But verse 23 is fleshed out through the entire remainder of this book. He said, we sought our God concerning this matter and he listened to our pleading. I love what the philosopher Pascal said in his thoughts or his book called Pensees. He said, the greatest single distinguishing feature of the omnipotence of God is that our imagination gets lost when we think about it. Listen. You ever stop to think about how powerful God is and you meditated on it long enough until your brain hurt because you couldn't get your mind wrapped around just how powerful he is? That's what happened here. And yet this God, he says he listened to our pleading. That's a way of explaining that he answered our prayer. Let me give you the answer to that. He's going to give us a summary at the end of this section. Drop down to verse 31. Ezra says, Then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. And he rescued us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the road. So we came to Jerusalem and remained there for three days. Again, economy of language. What he tells us here, without giving us any details, is that these vulnerable people with their little children and their incredible wealth that had been granted to them by the hand of God moving a pagan king, they went 900 miles in 15 weeks. And he tells us there were enemy ambushes along the way. And yet, without soldiers, troops, horses, weapons, God was enough for the trip. 
and we came to Jerusalem where we set out to get to because God is God. We got to quit saying God is God and we got to start living that God is God. The entire credit for this trip, Ezra gives to God alone. Now, frankly, I think Ezra was a much greater leader than he gave himself credit for. But part of what made him a great leader was that he never took credit for what God did through him. He understood that God is God and he doesn't share credit. Listen, what God has done in this church, if we had three days, we could be here and you could take turns standing one at a time and just talk about what God's done in your life, how this church has had an impact on you. And, 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 and it would be an incredible thing. But at the end of those three days of testimony, we would have to agree that it doesn't have anything to do with the pastor or leaders or anything else. It's about the Spirit of God choosing to make himself known among this people. And if he has made himself known this incredibly for these 24 years, baby, buckle up. Because God has big plans. We're still on the journey on the way to where he's taken us. And we've burned our ships. There's no going back. It gets bigger and better from here. Not because we're building a kingdom, but because as long as we recognize that the credit belongs to him, he is content to use weak people filled with shortcomings like us. But this is what he wants at the bottom line. He wants us to consecrate ourselves and to exercise our faith. So that's the question. Are you all in? Here's the homework for the week. I think you ought to find a day this week where you can consider fasting. Maybe you've never fasted before. All you have to do is what I told you. You take every time that you would normally give attention to food and you replace that by giving your attention to the word of God and prayer. And here's the question for the day of fasting. Lord, am I just a hanger-on who enjoys being in the crowd of people at Evergreen? Or am I an all-in follower of Jesus Christ no matter what? Now listen, this lion of a God, he's not safe but he is good. It's time for us to seek him. He says that those who seek him with a whole heart, he will allow himself to be found. When was the last time that you pursued God for the purpose of allowing the Spirit of God to inventory your heart to make sure that there's not anything you're holding on to that's getting in the way? You see, a fast, when you lay down food, it often leads to an understanding of other things in your life that he wants you to lay down. I don't know what that is for you, but it takes an inventory. And it's hard to do an inventory without carving out a time where God gets time that normally goes to other routine matters of life. You don't have to take off work. I mean, it's good if you can. You don't, have to, you don't have to go away on a trip. 
You don't have to go hide in a cave somewhere. You just have to say, every time food comes to my mind, every time a part of my schedule would normally be given to food, I'm going to talk to God and I'm going to meet with him. And here's the question. God, search me and know me and show me, show me who I am. Because God, you actually know me better than I know myself. I want to be all in. I don't want a plan B. I don't want an escape hatch. I want to be all in because I don't know what's coming, but whatever's coming, the enemy has some ambushes ahead. We need to be the people of God and we need to have settled the issue of where our loyalty lies. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's the starting place. God is not obligated to give you anything beyond the common grace that he gives to the whole earth until you come to Jesus. And in that process, he receives you as a chosen one. You you come to Jesus and it feels like you're stepping toward him and he embraces you. And all of a sudden in that moment, you realize that he's been the one coming toward you the whole time. If you don't know Jesus, we'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Man, he's got a life of transformation to give to you because he doesn't want you just the way you are. He wants you the way he created you to be, but only he can do that in you. Come to Jesus and let us introduce you to him. Maybe you're already a believer in Jesus and and you should be a follower, but you've, you've gotten sidetracked by all different kinds of things. Maybe you need to come and say, Lord, I, 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 I've been content to have you as my Savior, but the Bible doesn't know Jesus as Savior without Jesus as Lord. That makes no sense biblically. And so I just want to settle that issue. I want you to be Lord. That means master. I want you to be in charge. I want to drag my sorry backside off the throne because the throne belongs to you. You bought me with a price. You're the king of my life. I want to now act and acknowledge that you're king of my life. Just come to the throne. The the throne room of grace is represented right here. Just kneel down. We'll pray with you if you'd like that. Just, Just ask the spirit to just settle some divided loyalty issues in your mind. Maybe you need to be a part of a church. Listen, this Christianity business is not meant to be a solo endeavor. You gotta be in community. You gotta be a part of the assembly of the saints. Right now in a different part of our campus is an Evergreen 101 class. I don't even know how many people are there. We see dozens of people coming in every month to membership in this church. We'd love to share with you that process so that you can know how you can stand shoulder to shoulder with the people of Evergreen and do life together in this community of saints. Whatever you need to do, our pastors are gonna be right here. We'd love to just visit with you. We'll pray with you. If it's a longer conversation, we'll set up a time so that we can get with you and just just answer your questions. Don't be intimidated. We are really not scary. Just make your way here. Let's start a conversation that may not only change your life, it might change your eternity. But if you are a believer in, in Jesus, you're a follower of his, you're a member of Evergreen, this is the question for you. Are you content to be on the fringe, just enjoying the fellowship? 
or are you sold out and all in? Because see, there's some enemy ambushes ahead in our generation. We've got to be a people who don't just say God is big enough, but we, even in our own lack of faith, we walk in the confidence that God's not going to let us crash and burn because we're his children. Find your way to the throne and discover that the throne is where you're most at home in the whole universe. Ezra, an obscure character from the Old Testament, sets the example for New Testament believers like us to make our way to God and to acknowledge that we not only claim that he's powerful, but we're gonna live like he's powerful. We're gonna put him on display. Let that be our legacy. Father, thank you so much that among the people of Evergreen, we find hearts that are determined to be yours without reservation. Lord, I ask in these moments that you would just draw us to yourself in a way that that is life-changing. No second options, no escape plans, no plan B. Father, if you don't do what you've called us to do in our lives, we're sunk. But we're willing to live on the edge because we believe that much that you are who you say you are. Have your way among this people and in our hearts. Find here a people whose hearts are entirely yours. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.